0: plushcare.com slash weight loss new start
1: financial stress brexit and taking back control flat wages scomo cozying up to trump canada political marketing and jacinda ardern it's all on this week's democracy sausage Thanks for logging on again to another Democracy Sausage, produced out of ANU's prestigious Crawford School of Public Policy. Of course, I'm Mark Kenny from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and indeed the School of Politics and International Relations. We've got a rich and varied show today, much like our guests. Among the topics I'd like to discuss are the return to Parliament, the performance of the banks, the compelling case for increasing the dole, the economy in a time of drought and flat wages and pallid global growth, and plenty more. Joining me to do that is a brilliant panel. Dr. Ben Phillips is Associate Professor at the ANU Centre for Social Research and Methods. And Ben, to paraphrase Tom Gleeson from Hard Quiz, lately you've really been getting into the dole. Is that right? (laughs)
2: Sounds okay to me, yes. (laughs) Well,
1: we'll come come back to that and talk a little bit more about what your research has shown. Also with us is Dr. Katrine Beauregard from the School of Politics and International Relations. Welcome back to you, Katrine.
3: Thank you for having me.
1: I recently attended a seminar given by Maria Teflaga also often of this uh, podcast, with uh, with some research that you and she had done on female participation in political parties. That research shows there's still plenty of uh, barriers in the system to women in politics, doesn't it?
3: Yes. Well, for that specific paper, we do actually do what I like about the paper is that we do see that there's a lot of very... Female candidate with a lot of merit, and they are able to challenge uh, the ba- those barriers, right? So, saying that there's not enough, that, that those women, there's not enough women, good women out there, is actually simply wrong. So
1: yeah that's right i mean, it's, it's it's a it's it's a sort of a cultural failure yeah. and a failure of structure in those yeah. political parties the way they do it and that's uh that's uh, i guess um been recognized for some time but it was interesting to to see yeah. uh you know some of the empirical data about that uh, which really um suggests that while there are some improvements uh, happening yeah. in that regard and we we we're well aware of them there are still plenty of barriers as well. Also with us is Dr. Jennifer Lee's Marshmut, who as well as being a visiting fellow here at ANU which is fantastic she's also associate professor of the university at the University of Auckland School of Social Sciences also uh, politics and international relations great to have you along Jennifer
0: thank you it's great to be here
1: uh, you're a, you're an expert in political marketing uh branding market research, strategy, comms, that kind of thing. Um, And I believe you're currently completing a book on political management, uh, looking at political uh, HR, strategic planning, leading organising and reviewing and so forth. Tell us a bit about that.
0: Yeah, so we've, we've already done a lot of research on how politicians use marketing to get into power. And then one of the things we became aware of is once they get there, they don't know how to manage staff, manage parliamentary processes, manage party unity. And that can have an impact on policy because the good policies can end up being scrapped because they can't manage their own parties. So is, I think of Malcolm Turnbull scrapping the NEG and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, so, so this is
1: the idea that, that politicians... In a sense, they they come there with the mandate of the people, but not necessarily with the expert, you know, with the skills and expertise necessary to do the kind of administrative task of running. Yeah,
0: and it's not just administrative, but it's been able to wield lots of different, diverse sources of power. So use their staff well, use parliamentary legislative timing, and there are a whole range of things that they get to know probably over time. But, of course, a new politician freshly elected coming in to power who's got great policy ideas can really struggle to get them through because they don't have that those years of experience.
1: Yeah. Now, Ben, let's uh, go back to this question of the dole, because this is a uh, or new start, as it uh, is officially called here, because this is a live debate at the moment. There's a growing um, chorus, uh, and has been for some time now, of interests arguing for increasing new start. This is uh, coming from obviously from the the places you'd expect it on the political left of the spectrum, but also from employer peak bodies, uh, market economists. Uh, I, I saw a, um, a prominent uh, consulting firm. I think it was EY the other day. Did some work on this, uh, and you've done plenty of work on it as well. The government seems uh, intransigent though, or, or determined not to do this. Let's just look at some of the uh, figures about New Start to begin with. I mean, it's worth what about five hundred and fifty-five dollars a week? Uh, sorry, a fortnight for an individual getting New Start.
2: Yeah, so it's about five hundred and sixty dollars per fortnight. Um, It hasn't really increased in real terms since the mid-1990s, whereas all of our incomes, the age pension, uh, most incomes across the economy have increased substantially above the cost of living or the consumer price index. So it's fallen behind by roughly about 60% over the last 25 to 30 years, uh, which is a pretty dramatic decline in your relative living standards. Uh, So that's the, the crux of the problem, but certainly... Across business, across government, at least in terms of, uh, say, academia, um, most of business, there really is agreement that the the, um, rate needs to increase. Uh, But certainly in terms of the, the halls of power, there's been difficulty in getting any real action in terms of increasing that payment.
1: Yeah, now Labor seems more inclined to do it now uh, and there's a, there's a, you know, a lot of uh, support for, uh, for doing that uh, in, on the Labor side but, of course, that doesn't amount to a hill of beans if you're in opposition. And while, uh, while Labor was, I, I guess, expected to win the election, it still hadn't committed to, uh, to increasing New Start. The government, as I say, remains unsupportive. Its argument, whenever it's asked about this, is to say the best form of welfare is a job. Which is uh, really great, except that if you have a job, you don't really need welfare. And the problem is, New Start's for people who don't have a job and can't get a job. Is uh, what? What's your research show about you know just how livable that situation is, and, and what are the kind of broader implications for people uh, as participants in the labour market, which they are if they are on New Start. Um, what, what does that uh, show about you know how effectively they can participate in the labour market? So we've looked at their financial living standards and certainly with regards to things like poverty rates or
2: financial stress rates, those who rely on the new start payment and other related allowances such as the uh, youth allowance payment have fallen well, well behind the living standards of, of the general society and also those, say, on the age pension, which is – are closer to not to $900 per fortnight. So significantly higher than the new start payment at $560 per fortnight. So in terms of financial stress, we've found that the rates of financial stress of those who rely on new starts increased over the last 20 years from around about 50% to around about two and three or 67%. And in terms of how far they're below the poverty line, if you went back 25 years ago, they'll roughly on the poverty line, whereas now, on average, they're behind by about $120, 130 per week across the household. It's a little different from, from individuals. So they've fallen well behind, and certainly that would make it very challenging in terms of getting yourself in the right shape, um, both mentally, physically, uh, to be in the labour market if you're financially in that difficult sort of a position.
1: Yeah, because I mean, if you think it through, there are, there are a range of ways in which that, uh, that, that becomes very difficult. Uh, you would uh, very likely have some level of housing stress. When you are, as you say, well below the poverty line, so certainly with the financial stress measures that we
2: look at, the ABS has got a range of measures that that, in, that are included as part of financial stress, and these are things like something as simple as putting a meal on the table, being able to pay your electricity bills, being able to pay rates, and being able to pay rent. Uh, so obviously, if you're struggling in those areas, then your ability to get a job would certainly be would certainly be impacted. Uh, so certainly, it's very difficult for people on those payments. The theory, of course, is that um, if it's the the payment for the new start payment or the dollars you you were calling it is particularly low, then that's a strong incentive to work. But it's it's so low now that it's firstly, it's obviously difficult to. To, to sustain yourself, but also you 're so far from even say being on the minimum wage that the incentive even if the payment was increased a little bit um, to make life a bit more livable you 'd still got a very large incentive to be to be employed, keeping in mind that the minimum wage is around fourteen hundred dollars per fortnight compare that to the new start payment of 560. So if you were to lift it to, say, 700 a fortnight where it's, say, marginally livable, you've still got a pretty big incentive. And I think in, in theory, there, is, there may be some, some sense in having a lowish unemployment rate compared to some of the other payments. Um, but I think it's gotten to the point where it is, uh, well, frankly, quite a fairly ridiculous situation.
1: Well, why do we think that is? I mean, does anyone have a theory about that? Why is it, for example, that uh, uh, aged pensioners and other uh, recipients of assistance uh, seem to have more, f- find more favour in Canberra than the unemployed? Uh, well,
0: seniors, pensioners, they vote in high numbers. <laughs> so for either party, and and for the current um, Liberal government, you know, for them it's a key target market. Whereas people who are beneficiaries who are on the dole are not. And then there's also the middle group, the middle class, who are more open to persuasion, but they can sometimes also be quite skeptical of, you know, they're not aware of the facts that, that you just put forward in terms of, you know, they don't think about the fact that you need to give people enough money to live on well enough so they can then compete in the job market. They see it as giving them money for free and that's not fair when they're working really hard on minimum wage, trying to pay bills, not feeling that well off in, you know, cities like Sydney, Brisbane and Melbourne and so mm. on. I'll
3: hard to add that. From an electoral perspective, stereotypes do work, and they work very well. And the the idea, and when uh, uh, the prime minister says the best welfare is uh, for, as, a, as a job, well, he plays into a very uh, common stereotype as people who are unfair are lazy, they just don't want to work. And that think that that's idea is still very present and still a lot of people do believe it's a stereotype, but a lot of people do believe it and it's easy. It's much more easy to believe the stereotypes than to believe the numbers that, or to know, uh, inform yourself about the numbers, as Ben was saying.
1: Yeah, it's like a device though, isn't yeah. it, really? Because when you think about what they're saying to, particularly to Labor, to the Greens, uh, to, to some of, uh, to the unions, you know, to those people who've been agitating for this, particularly uh, outside of Labor in the case of uh, all of those other groups for some time. Um, but you know, even now to the opposition, effectively the message the government's saying is, "Well, you talk about new start; we talk about jobs." You know, that's what they're trying to to get across. And and you know, we've we've presided over an economy that's created uh, 1.3 million jobs. I think is the number they they say at the moment. Although they don't say presided over the economy, they just say they've created 1.3 million jobs, which is uh, perhaps. Uh, Cheeky. But uh, nonetheless, uh, that is the sort of the, the politics of it, isn't it? You know, we talk about jobs, you talk about the dole. And it's not about increasing unemployment, it's about getting people off unemployment uh, benefits and into work. And so going to your point, Ben, about uh, perhaps uh, deliberately keeping it low, treat them mean to keep them keen, it seems to be.
2: I think that's that's the approach. But what we're increasingly seeing is that people who are on the new start payment, increasingly there are people with uh, physical or mental disabilities or there are also people who live in areas where there's, it's well known, there are not a large number of jobs. And of course, some might say, well, move to an area where there are jobs. But of course, many people, the, the, the fabric of their life is in a particular region. And, and your mobility
1: when you're on uh, on such parsimonious economic, economic circumstances is very limited. Uh, of presumably. course. And you,
2: you, would, you may, of course, have family in a particular region. Uh, there, it might be that there's been some sort of industrial change, like so, the mining boom may have collapsed in certain regions, so there's difficulties in, in getting jobs. So unfortunately, many of the people on the payment are increasingly on the payment for a long time. The theory would be that you fall into this unemployment payment or you fall unemployed, you're there very briefly, you get a little bit of a helping hand, then you move on to another job. And if that were the case, I wouldn't have so many problems with it. Uh, but it is unfortunately the case that increasingly they are people who have got lots of difficulties in their life or they live in an area where it is quite, um, it's quite a vulnerable area. Uh, so the payments effectively now for for a longer period of time than what it used to be. Um, So that's where much of the problem remains. Has
1: anyone ever experimented with, and I know this sounds sort of rather punitive, but the whole rate at the moment sounds rather punitive to me anyway. Has anyone experimented with the idea of, uh, of it decreasing over time? That is to say that there's an in, you know that recognition when people are first unemployed that they need to get back into the labour market and they need to have enough assistance to in fact be able to do that. But um, you know after a, after a year or two years or whatever uh, that it that it uh, scales back as as an incentive for them to leave it. I think there's
2: been um, there's been um, options placed around that sort of area. Both in both directions. So, in the so the twenty fourteen fifteen budget, uh, the Tony Abbott hockey budget, uh, there was talk of having a, a six month waiting period. So you didn't actually mm. get the dole until you'd been unemployed for at least six months. Yeah, well, I'm
1: arguing to get. And in you're the arguing the other direction.
2: way, of course. Yeah. So there is also the other argument that uh, you might uh, say so limit the payment beyond say a year or, or two years. Um, and of course, again, in theory that might have some sense to it, but in reality. Usually the people who are on these payments for a very long period of time, not everybody, but the, the, the majority of them would have things like mental problems or mental disabilities, physical disabilities, living in areas where it's, there's very challenging economic circumstances and that would just lead to, to extreme poverty issues for those people.
1: One of the other issues that, uh, um, you know, is dominating economic and political discourse at the moment is, uh, the, you know, the state of the economy, wages being flat, uh, global growth, uh, being a problem, you know, with the trade war between the US and China and Brexit and various other challenges that, that have come forth. Um, and of course, this, this issue of flat wages is a great concern for policymakers. The Reserve Bank governors, uh, you know, made reference to it a number of times, is even invited. Uh, unions or employees to get a bit more bolshy, to get a bit more militant perhaps and demand uh, higher wages as um, as part of the process. There's a range of things the government could do. Uh, one of them might be to actually unfreeze its own employees so that we see some pressure come from the public sector side of the labour market on wages, some upward pressure. Um, just on this question of the dole though, uh, Ben, would be interested in your view as an economist. I mean, uh, that any money that goes into the pockets of people on unemployment benefits would go straight back into the economy. It wouldn't be very rarely going into paying down debt or paying down mortgages or whatever. I mean, th- these are people who who use all of the money they have to get by and would presumably spend that money and would have some, some stimulus.
2: Yeah. So there was some research that was done by, I think it was uh, Access Economics. Chris Richardson's talked about it quite a few times that uh, certainly there would be stimulus, a stimulatory impact by increasing the unemployment payment, and that is because people in that particular group, they tend to spend more than they earn. So if you give them an additional $75 per week or whatever the increase might be, they would spend all of that money, it would go back into the economy. Um, whereas, say, with interest rate reductions, it may well be that people just pay off their debt a little more quickly, M- many of them are middle or high-income families, and they may not even really barely notice it, whereas certainly for lower-income people and those on the unemployment payment, they're very likely to spend that money, it goes back into the economy. So there certainly is that argument, yes. Mm.
1: Karateen, do you think this is something that the government will eventually fold on or will it just continue to sort of run that line?
3: Mm. Uh, I think for the liberal, I would say it would be very de- – not too much dangerous, but they do are – Within a certain ideology that they have to respect, and uh, anti unions or a free market is kind of one of their strongest points and the way that they want to play it, right? So I think it's probably it's tempting in a way because you want to get those votes, and if a lot of people don't want to have, uh, if the people don't see their. Their in, their income increase, sorry, then their uh, purchases power is problematic, and then they can pressure government for it. But the, it's a bit of a goes against the, the government's ideology, I would say.
1: You you agree with that, Jennifer? That uh, from the from the sort of marketing uh, point of view or the positioning uh, of 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 a conservative government, that it's just it's just better off. I mean, the way it's going to see it, that is, it's better off holding the line here and just arguing that line that it's pro jobs.
0: That, I mean, that's the, the simplest argument and the simplest strategy to take. It would only be if they were smarter, or wiser or had deeper, and superior market research that told them Say, for example, that some middle class people were concerned about the people at the lower end. I mean, in New Zealand, we have, we have Vote Compass like you, and some of the data that we saw in the last election showed big concern, even amongst higher income earners and national, which is our equivalent, Liberals, and, and from national voters, that they were concerned about people getting left behind because it wasn't even just people who weren't working, it was people who were working who were, you know, sleeping in cars because of the cost of living has accelerated massively in Auckland. So it just depends. I mean, if they, you know, I'd be surprised if I suspect, on a simplistic level, public opinion research, you know, polling or whatever, is telling them that their core voters don't want to give increased benefits. But if they dug deeper than that and did more qualitative research, focus group research, they might actually find there's there's broader concern. Um. So, but whether they'd want to bother to get go down that track will only be if the the middle class voters that become, you know, very volatile and the next election is closed, which it could easily be, given Australian political history, that it might change. But I think really the the potential is for Labour to rebrand increases in in welfare payments as being good for the economy. So you increase the the payments, the the new start payment, they're more likely to be able to get back on the job market. And that's yeah. what they need. They need to see, they need to rebrand it as a ladder not just a payment but a ladder to get back into society and be functioning and contributing to society. So that's the kind of angle they need to do. So instead of just doing sort of the heartfelt poverty angle, which, you know, is perfectly legitimate for all the reasons that we've discussed, they need to brand it as an economic argument.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good point. That uh, to to sell it as a, a a part of the economy that is is legitimate and needs to function, particularly in terms of the labour market, that for these people to get back into work, particularly those people who've been on new start for a long time, you know, they need to have uh, the capacity to participate properly and to compete, as you say, in the labour market. And so it needs to be seen in those terms rather than as um, you know rather than as sort of a festering.
0: Yeah, there was something that, that the former the, New Zealand economy. Prime Minister Bill English he called it social investment. So he was a national um party, he was Deputy Prime Minister and then Prime Minister after John Key. And his argument was that it's actually more beneficial to invest in, you know, in beneficiaries and in, in families with problems because it costs to get them back you know, on the job market and get back into society functioning, because otherwise it costs the country so much to deal with all the problems if they're left out on the side. So it's that kind of approach that Labour needs to take, rather than just being nice, because just being nice <laughs> doesn't isn't always enough in political marketing terms.
1: At the other end of the uh, the spectrum, I guess uh, people who are doing well, or at least doing well enough to own their own houses, are, are um, you know suffering at the moment. They're always suffering, of course. Uh, you know, housing housing costs and the like. There's been three cuts. In the cash rate, uh, recently, this year, I think. And, um, uh, I think about only, only two, you know, two out of those three rate cuts have actually been passed on to borrowers. Ben, is that, um, I mean, the government just today, as we, as we record this podcast, the government has announced a, a, um, an inquiry by the ACCC into the bank's handling of interest rates and the cash rate. Is, is, I mean governments complain about the banks all the time, but nothing seems to change. is Is this just another kind of device in that regard or, or do you think there's some potential for uh, for the ACCC to identify changes that can be uh, brought?
2: Yes yeah, so I think the the funding of of banks is a complex issue, so certainly when interest, when the reserve bank when they lower their interest rates by say twenty five basis points as they've done a number of times now, the cost of the banks aren't entirely related to that particular cash rate, and that's the argument that the banks would put forward. I think there is probably some logic to it. So we have seen very large reductions in the official cash rate over recent years, and there has been some reduction in bank interest rates, but it hasn't been fully passed on. Uh, So that would be the argument that they would put forward, as I would say it.
1: When we come back, we'll talk about we'll lift our eyes a bit and talk about uh, some uh, some more interesting international issues uh, and and also I guess the positioning of the Australian Government in respect of uh, its um, you know Scott Morrison's very close relationship with Donald Trump, and of course matters uh, in the Middle East and Britain and the like. Uh, so we'll just take a quick break and be back with you shortly.
0: Hi, I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. Each week we bring together expert analysis to tackle the big issues facing our region and to propose policy solutions. It's insightful, it's positive and it's always fun. Policy Forum Pod is out every Friday. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your pods or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
1: Welcome back. Uh, now, Jennifer, it's a pretty febrile debate in Australia, the issue of uh, China and the US, uh, the argument about whether we should choose. You're a New Zealander, so I'm very interested, <laughs> uh, as well as being an expert in, in, in political positioning and marketing and the like, very interested in how you view this uh, this situation. Do you think, for example, Scott Morrison has taken any risks in how close he's got personally to Donald Trump?
0: It's a very dangerous road to go down. I mean, on one hand, of course, Australia and New Zealand and other countries need to maintain a positive international relationship with the US, but Donald Trump's reputation is is very poor Um, and Scott Morris has got to be careful of the impact it could have on his own brand. I mean, he won the last election. He will have got support from people who are not pro-Donald Trump as well as those who perhaps are. And so it's a very fine line. I mean, I, I would have thought it would be unlikely that Australia is going to just jump massively hard to the hard right and, you know, engage in Trumpesque and kind of politics. I So it's interesting to think what he's trying to do. I mean, it could be just purely trying to shore up his own right-wing supporters. But again, the battle is always in the middle ground. It's not the right or left. It's always in the middle ground. So he's got to be a bit careful, I think. But Otherwise, isn't... it could contaminate his own brand and yeah. and go against, you know, that family man, nice man, middle of the road, able to manage things well, kind of. I mean. uh,
1: you, do you think that would change if in the, in the event that Donald Trump were impeached? Uh, you know, yeah,
0: well, that could absolutely, totally damage um, Scott Morrison's brand very much. And that's why he's got to be really careful. And you've always got to be careful, I think. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. a domestic political leader, you know, you're a leader of your country, and yes, you engage with other countries, but you, what you do internationally can affect your domestic reputation.
1: But there's no doubt that Donald Trump has come along and ef- effectively rede- redefined the, the presidency, not... In a good way, but he's redefined the presidency of around his own personality a lot and and to that ex- extent, I think Scott Morrison has been quite clever he's recognized that it's the personal relationship as well as the you know the long standing institutional country to country relationship that Australia has the bond that we have with the u s is very strong and that that that's all there but all of that could be washed away in an instant if Donald Trump has a you know fit of pique over something. So Morrison seems to have recognised that being close to the pri- to the president personally. Uh, gives him leverage that he might not otherwise have.
0: Yes, and, and and in terms of international negotiations, that's what most people would argue, I'm sure, from the IR side, that that's what you need to do. You've just got to be careful of the optics and how it looks back home. So I'll give you another completely different example where Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister of New Zealand, gets a lot of really positive international media coverage. And that yes, that's great for New Zealand in the world, but after a while voters back home start saying, but what about our our housing crisis and what about our traffic crisis and what about our child poverty issues? We elect you to do that, not to go around the world and be seen, you know, in all these TV shows. So you've got to be really careful because, I say, that your own country's market is very different to the international market. So if you're seen as aligning yourself with Trump, it's a very risky move. Now, Trump does also have some, you know, legitimate positioning in terms of he's tapping into co- discontent amongst working people that they're not getting ahead. And obviously, that's something that Scott Morrison may be detecting in Australia, which is maybe partly behind the, you know, anti-increasing New Start. So that's got a potential, you know, political marketing mileage. But the optics, you know, being seen close to Donald Trump is, is, is problematic. It's risky. Uh,
1: Catherine, your country, your original country, Canada, and <laughs> yes. uh, Justin Trudeau's taken a different ap- approach, I suppose, yeah. and it's, he's had a, a pretty kind of fractious relationship with Washington as a result.
3: I think – but from a very long time in Canadian history, having a, a, a liberal – so in Canada, liberal is a center left. Yep. Basically, having a liberal prime minister with a republican president always lead to some form of conflict. So things in between our two countries used to work better when both – have the same kind of ideology, which is historically speaking. So it's not the first time that there's been bumps in the relationship in Canada. So I think we might, it might be the big difference I think right now bef- between Trudeau and Morrison is that there might be some ideological affinities with Trump. Yeah. And you have to remember that they, there is some part of the Australian public who are pro-Trump, like there is some part of the Canadian public who are pro-Trump, like a Unfortunately, see them on Facebook, right? They these are they do exist. Is the difference is that they might be within the the, the liberal uh, coalition here in Australia, and you have to somewhat prevent them from leaving us. Which what basically happened in Canada is that there's right now there's an election, and there's a new populist right wing party who just ran and is competing with the conservative, and they position themselves in the same kind of ideology. So it might be something that I don't know exactly about the internal politics. Within the coalition, but it might be something within that is an explanation for uh, for Scott Morrison aligning himself very much. Is it might be some powerful faction who really likes Trump because these people do exist.
1: Yeah, well, that's true. <laughs> they definitely exist. I mean, Trump does have supporters in mm-hmm. Australia, uh, and 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 people who will uh, even if they're not supporters will concede that uh, mm-hmm. he's an effective politician in in some respects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and who knows he yeah. he he. Uh, you would say on the numbers, he's likely to survive this attempt by the Democrats to impeach him and have that upheld by the Senate. And the two-thirds votes, yes. two-thirds majority for that impeachment to be upheld would be, um, it's pretty hard to see happening. But in Canada, for example, is, is the calculation of Trudeau and his party that there's mileage in being, uh, sort of in tension with yeah. Trump?
3: I think to go back to Jennifer's point like there's points to be won nationally in Canada by opposing Trump right and then Trudeau knows that this is his electorate right he has but at the same time it's a fine line because we're very dependent on the free trade agreement uh, with the US which is a major part of the Canadian economy uh, so you have to make sure to keep those uh, line of communication open to please him at this, to keep the, the Canadian economy going because we do need that free trade agreement so it's a it's a tough
1: one. Let's uh, shift our focus then um, across the Atlantic to to Britain. Uh, I'm actually going to uh, be uh, heading off there shortly, and uh, this podcast will hopefully come from Britain um, for the next few weeks. After that, uh, as uh, things move towards that 31st of October date, when the UK is crashing out of Europe, unless there's some sort of a deal, there is some uh, there are some signs of uh, of possible progress in negotiations, but it's very hard to see whether they are going to be done in time. And then, of course, there are other hurdles that have to be got over after that, like the fact that um, the numbers in the House of Commons don't appear to be there or certainly haven't been there in the past for any sort of deal. And whatever uh, Boris Johnson comes up with uh, is presumably short of uh, you know what Theresa May proposed, which was rejected before anyway, and just about everything else has been rejected. So look, it's really fascinating um, to to see how that's all playing out, um, Jennifer, you've looked at uh, at this issue and uh, particularly at, um, at Dominic Cummings, who's uh, Boris Johnson's chief advisor. Um, ha- what do you make of the way Johnson's sort of positioned himself through all this? Because a lot of it has been just straight out positioning. You know, there's that famous story that uh, before the the um, the vote on Brexit, you know, the actual referendum, that he wrote two different columns: one supporting it, and one opposing it, and eventually went with the one opposing it, that is opposing remaining.
0: Yeah, it, it, the Brexit issue is a huge, complex marketing and management issue because the results of the referendum weren't, weren't strong. So, yes, you know, leave just about one but not much. Then there's the whole big data Cambridge Analytica potential interference in, in the result, um, which may have just, you know, when elections are close or referendums are close, that's when it makes a difference. Um, and then the other thing is that and this is where Cummings come in, comes in and Boris Johnson comes in, is that they branded leaving the EU as not just being about the EU but about taking back control. Take so back, they, they tapped it control, a bit like Trump yeah. and a Morrison may do and a bit like Simon Bridges is beginning to do in New Zealand and that the leader of the National Party in New Zealand at the moment. They're tapping into this discontent that things are not good enough, that the quality of life is declining perhaps because of the flat increase in wages but also very big, you know, Um, too busy cities, so it's too hard to get to work in the morning versus in the regions where there's not enough going on and not enough infrastructure and vibrancy. And there's just a sense that, you know, we're kind of going backwards and then you add in climate change and that makes things even more complex. So what Cummings did is he branded leaving the EU as, as, you know, Britain's taking back control. And then we've had the last two to three years of just it being in the hands of the elites and not being able to sort it out, not being able to actually action the voice of the people. So in terms of Boris Johnson now coming in and being leader, it's actually quite hard. I mean, his position he wants is very clear he wants out of the EU, but he can't just decide it. No prime minister can just decide it. And this is where the political management comes in because you, you're not marketing to the public anymore. You're actually managing internal party dispute, not just in your party but in the opposition party because referendums cut across party lines mm. and they mess all the old laws in terms of party whips. Everything is messed up. So everybody, you know, you end up with Labour and Conservative people together and fighting to, to leave or to stay, and just nobody look at
1: Johnson's own family.
0: Yeah, exactly. I I mean, his just... mother
1: was the only person other than Boris, if assuming Boris did, who voted to leave.
0: Yeah, because in a way, people <laughs> voted for a product which wasn't really Brexit, but it was. Well, we want to have more control over our lives. We want to make sure our living standards are good and make sure we don't have too many immigrants and that we can get the infrastructure right because Britain is very crowded. We think Australia is bad enough. You know, Britain's really crowded. And then we've ended up the result where it's ended up doing something that people don't necessarily want, or some people don't. Most people probably don't want. Hmm. So it's a huge mess.
1: Ben, it's pretty odd, isn't it, when you think about it? I mean, sometimes it, uh, you, you need to sort of step back, and when, when when these things are all consuming, there's just there's just been an absolute blizzard of of kind of news. It's paralyzed British politics really for the three years since the referendum. Um. But when you step back at it and look at it, right, this is pretty rare. We've got a country voting to preparing to make its international trading harder. That is to um, to actually in, reimpose restrictions on the export of its goods into foreign markets. It sits next, next to a market of 500 million people. That's a big market. It's proposing to pull out of that and then sort of patch that up with a bunch of – um bilateral free trade agreements like the one it's trying to negotiate with Australia, a population of 25 million. It's pretty extraordinary, isn't it?
2: Well, look, to me, it seems completely crazy. It strikes me as trying to unscramble the egg as well. Obviously, the UK has evolved in recent years with the EU. Um, They've developed incredibly close ties. And now to try and unscramble all of that seems to me like Economic lunacy so um, so how it all came about is, is a little bit of a mystery to me it doesn't make a lot of sense to me but not everything in politics makes a lot of sense <laughs> to me but particularly that one is particularly strange.
1: Jennifer I mean uh, as uh, so not Jennifer I'll go to Katrine here but as Jennifer was saying um, uh, about you know how this is being marketed uh, internally uh, it's, it's almost like Johnson is needing to market this to the elites who have been uh, you know, the, the, the problem in terms of paralysis.
3: I mean, when Ben was talking, all I can think of was like it's f- being a failure of the elite in a way, right? Because they market something to the public that they could not deliver any possible way because there was no plan, no agreement, no nothing to make able to deliver on actually the promise to the electorate. And I think that's been basically a failure of the elite. So if the people, I'm not entirely sure if you add the referendum again, might have Brexit might have passed again. I'm not entirely sure that the mind of the people have changed on that topic, but it's just that there's still there was no poss- plan because it's such a big mess. It's such a big complicated relationship mm-hmm. that just. Having a, uh, a finding it, sorry, an agreement is actually very difficult because all the I think the most po- uh, best example of that is when a couple of months ago they had all these votes in the parliament for all the different option and none of them could find a majority is that it represent very well. The problem is that you can always find a coalition of people to oppose any sorts of plan that those elites will propose. And that might be also the the problem that's going to happen to Johnson. Whatever plan is going to come up, they'll be able to find a coalition of people to oppose it. And then nothing's going to
0: I <laughs> mean, the only thing that might give him hope is that people are sick of it and people just want it done. Yeah, But, yeah, but then they-, they don't really want it done. They want the Brexit process over. They don't really necessarily want Brexit because people didn't realize what they were losing. You know, they hope they were gaining power, but they're also losing so many protections and workers' well, rights. Taking the back EU-
1: control, as the famous uh, Dominic Cummings slogan, if we're to under- understand it correctly, that you know, he came up with that idea of take back control. And it, and that critical mm-hmm. word was back, so it had that kind of nostalgic, like
0: Make America Great Again. <laughs> same yeah, kind that's of like thing.
1: Make, right, make America Great Again. Exactly. Uh, it's about it's sort of harking back to a time when things were simpler and you had control, and you know you, you had you know, everything seemed uh, a lot better. Of course, we know there's a strong ele- element of nostalgia in that, but that was um, critical in getting a number of people to vote, particularly outside of London, who might not have voted but who were feeling this level of frustration with you know cosmopolitans and with uh, you know declining traditional industries and with uh, foreigners taking their jobs and all these other things that in some cases they felt they couldn't talk about and so there was this very strong element of that but it's interesting katrine going back to your point about the um about the elites i mean yes you can argue that the elites are the problem. But that is exactly what the Leave campaigners are saying, you know. (laughs) Uh, And in fact, as you also said, it's an unknown question as to how Britons would vote were they given another referendum, were they given one that approximated anything like the chance to make informed consent, given that they now have an understanding of what the costs are going to be, how complicated this all is. None of that was really understood when the first referendum was put. Mm. I
3: think... (sighs) go back to a bit of why people voted for Brexit, right? Part of it is that all the reasons you say, right, you are dissatisfied with your your life, things are... Uh, you feel like you're being left behind. I think the feeling of being left behind and the feeling of uh, basically seeing a lot of change happening that you don't really have control over, you're being feel left behind and there's all these new people, new ideas, new things that coming into your country that actually make it very scared. And I think that's why I said like, I think this feeling is still there and it's not being addressed, I think. Right. And it's, and uh, it's part of it's the complex relationship with the elites. Like they're positioning themselves. They're basically saying that problem is the other elites, is the European mm. elites are the problem. Our elites are us are basically, okay, and we'll solve this, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> it's a bug passing situation.
1: <laughs> it, it's, it, but it's a fascinating yeah. dynamic because th- you do see some crossover in that dynamic uh, around the debate on climate change. Uh, you know, the, uh, the the sort of political um locomotion, for want of a better way of putting it, for doing something on climate change comes from the cities, comes from urban elites in many cases. Um just interested in in uh, in, in what you think about that in terms of um you know the economic transformation that the country that all of these countries need to go through that the the globe needs to go through to reduce emissions and whether it's the it's the sort of the, these politics that we're talking about that we see rendered so starkly in brexit is just making that impossible
0: does brexit make it impossible or is it just impossible anyway no i mean the
1: because... politics of, uh, of of brexit mm. uh, you know that, that that is the contest between Urban elites and ordinary people, for want of a better way of putting it, um, that issues fall into that um, into that matrix, and then they become prisoner to, captive to,
0: if, if they're to only if they're only based and appealing to um, based on or appealing to a certain relatively small section of society that other people have no connection with. People
1: who are really clever, like Dominique Cummings, and and we've seen other dominant advisors like Alistair mm-hmm. Campbell in the past, are. Uh, uh, very very uh, skilled at sort of passing you know dividing up the electorate mm. partitioning it, working out what issues work what messages work in with different sectors now that was done with surgical brilliance mm. in the case of the uh the brexit referendum you know getting people to feel aggrieved and to express their votes and what i'm saying is is there do do we see that kind of and that produces a sort of uh, it can produce a result, but it can produce a sort of paralysis as well.
0: Well, it divides. The
1: inability to move an issue forward, as we can't with Brexit.
0: But you can use that same tool, that same political marketing tool of big data and micro-targeting and voter profiling and so on, for positive use as well. So the problem is not so much, not just that you know Brexiteers and Dominic Cummings of the world and Trumps of the world have access to those kind of tools and use them. It's perhaps that the Others who say are pro climate change don't use them. You could use them to make climate change relevant to ordinary people by you know connecting it with their in the same way that you have you know anti smoking campaigns, making people to wear seat belts, um, gay marriage, all those kind of issues, all those um, civil rights even back to the 1960s. You can use political marketing tools to to push for any issue, and I just think sometimes that those particularly on the, on the left tend to forget the need to market and sell and, and and take that argument to people who don't necessarily That's agree really with fascinating.
1: Them. So you're saying that you think that climate change getting uh, more more um, aggressive action to address climate change could be sold to people better mm-hmm. using those techniques than it is at the moment. And yeah. that and well why doesn't it work with farmers for example? Why doesn't it work in the regions where we see some of the yeah, stiffest good resistance? Point. Good point.
0: Partly because they're being hit financially and the government isn't necessarily taking enough account of that. I mean, I don't know the details of it. You'll need to get a policy expert onto that. But it's if, you know, I mean, we need to make climate change, you know, all of our responsibilities. We need to all feel like we're contributing and can contribute to that It's rather than having it so the farmers feel hit. Because we've got the same problem in New Zealand. Um, James Shaw, a Green Party minister who's part of the coalition government, is trying to bring forward a zero carbon bill. And the problem is that one of the key markets who may lose from that is the farmers, and the Greens ironically don't have that strong relationship with farmers. You think they would, but in fact it's the national and liberal p- Proven party that does. And so, of course, it's then again you know, bringing up this divide between the national party and farmers and then the Green Party and climate change people. Mm. But you can you can use marketing for any kind of issue. I just think sometimes people forget to use it when they believe they're right. <laughs> you know? It's a really interesting And it's point. morally good and it's about saving the planet and it feels good and so on. And sometimes we forget. We all do that. We all forget to think about how to present an argument that we believe in. Yeah, that's an interesting
1: point. Now, look, we're getting uh, close to the end here, but I I can't uh, not take the opportunity to throw a question without notice at you about Jacinda Ardern because we have, you know, a New Zealand academic in, in the room how is she travelling in australia there's a there's a view that uh, she is fantastic you know there, there there's there been a lot of lot of support for her people were very impressed of course about the way she handled uh, uh, herself and the government's response in the aftermath of the christchurch a christchurch attack uh, and so forth uh, is she um is she travelling as well as we might think over here or when you look at it more closely is she facing a more complicated political situation. It,
0: it is more complicated and under the surface. So on one hand, she is much more popular and effective than the opposition leader, Simon Bridges. Um, she's, you know, commanded herself well in government. So this Christchurch, of course, the mosque shootings, but also, you know, being pregnant, the first prime minister be, to be pregnant, to carry on doing the job. Um, and also they are trying to bring action on a number of areas that were neglected, such as infrastructure, traffic, housing, and so on. The problem is, is that dealing with those big infrastructure issues like housing crisis, which there is in Auckland and there never really has been in New Zealand before, because we didn't, you know, we're behind Australia. We don't have lots of big cities. Um, that, that takes time because a house takes a lot of time to be built, you know, to get the land, to get the consents and so on. And they've had a flagship policy called Kiwi Build that hasn't worked. It hasn't had massively ambitious targets and they haven't met them. And so then you've got potential for the, the opposition, the National Party to paint her as being, all talk, no action. Her last campaign slogan was, let's do it, and they'll say, but you haven't done it. They also may paint a brand as being immature and just leave lots of nice ideas, but not actually able to do it. And then if you connect that with sort of more Trumpesque type polis- politics, which I'm beginning to see from Simon Bridges, so I suspect he's being advised by some similar consultants to perhaps as well just as those for Scott Morrison, then basically the next election is not clear. Nobody can take it for granted. It's really not. But, that, you know, n- really n- neither party, National or Labour, are doing, p- you know, particularly well overall. The only thing that might save Labour is people say, well, at least they're trying. At least they tried and at least they're trying. Whereas National in the last election just denied there was a housing crisis. Mm. They just said everything's fine because we've got good economic growth. But not everybody was feeling it, so it doesn't work if you can't buy it.
1: Catherine, do you see any similarities between some of those criticisms of oh, her and Julie Gillard? Oh, yeah. Gillard? Actually,
3: I was thinking about <laughs> it when uh, Jennifer was talking. And actually, there's also right now, like I mentioned earlier, there's an election in Canada next week. And it's not certain that Trudeau is going to win. Uh, he's going to get re-elected. He might get a minority. It might be a minority conservative government. We don't. It's really close. And part of it is that I think is that it was really hard for Trudeau to sustain that image that he had four years earlier, right? Uh, and it, governing is actually very hard business and you cannot sustain it uh, based on this we came saying I'm going to make politics different, it's going to be all better and then just the reality sink and it, people realize well it's basically the same as it was before there's not that much change and there's a lot of disillusion going on I think right now in Canada around the liberals so the election will be quite interesting to see next week. And what,
1: and what about any similarity in some of those criticisms that applied to also Julia Gillard? Do, does that uh, resonate with you at all in mm-hmm. terms of uh, <laughs> Jacinda Ardern?
0: And ah, that's a <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, both have definitely faced, but like, yeah. both face sexist comments yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, I think I think Jacinda's had it a, a bit easier than Julia, in that New Zealand is a bit more accepting of a female politician, perhaps because we had Helen Clark beforehand. And Jenny Shipley before that. Yeah, this
1: is actually your third female prime minister. Yeah, yeah, so
0: there's that plus the pregnancy. She coped phenomenally well with it, and you know, just the images. I still remember these images of her, you know, heavily pregnant in Parliament, and just think what a wonderful role model that is for people. But I mean, the, yeah, she still gets sexism. I just don't think it's as bad. I mean, and it may be partly the coalition government, which is normal in New Zealand, the PR system, and so on, means that you've got New Zealand First led by a very traditional old male. Um, or, or be it Maori man, Winston Peters, and he supported her. So maybe it's just a bit more convivial, but I still think they face a lot, a lot of issues. Women, politicians everywhere.
1: Well, thank you very much for what's been a, a really fascinating discussion, ranging over a lot of topics from the economic to the political to the marketing and uh, and and environmental. We've we've covered a lot of ground today, and it's been a, a great pleasure to have you along. Thanks, Katrine. Thanks, Ben. Thank Thanks, you. Jennifer. Thank you. And uh, as I say, uh, next week, uh, hopefully, we'll be coming to you from. From Brexit Britain, Brexit-torn Britain, <laughs> uh, in which uh, I guess that will be a, a solid focus of our, uh, of our time, but we'll probably look at some other issues as well. So we'll look forward to talking to you then. If there are any questions you want to get to us, um, come to us at uh, the Twitter handle is Apps Policy Forum. The Facebook group is Policy Forum Pod and the email is podcast at policyforum.net. And we'll look forward to talking to you next week on Democracy Sausage.